Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Well, hello, you lovely podcast listening person. Chris Evans here. Thank you so much for having me and these forthcoming friends in your ears with the best of the breakfast show podcast with Sky from Virgin Radio from the last week. Aussie acting superstar Nicole Kidman speaks about her awesome new already award-winning film Being the Ricardos. She was awesome. Despian extraordinaire Sir Kenneth Branagh shares the story behind his hotly anticipated new semi-autobiographical film Belfast which is already being tipped for Academy Award glory. Music maverick Miles Kane gives us all the beans on the day's brand new album Change the Show was released and British acting powers Vicky McClure reveals all about her role in the gripping new bomb disposal ITV drama Trigger Point all of that and so much more to come so Dapper Dave who's first? Small screen or big, our next guest will light it up like no one else on earth. Her brand new movie, Being the Ricardos, is out now on Amazon Prime Video. So please welcome an actress that's on quite a roll of telling nine perfect strangers some pretty big little lies. It's the one and only Nicole Kidman! Good morning, Nicole! Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Australia. It's just so so good to have you on the show again. You always find time for us. We couldn't be more grateful. Thank you so much, Nicole Kidman. I love you. You know that. (laughs) Uh, Well done on this this film. It's awesome. You can pick them, can't you? No, no, no. It's all luck. (laughs) Um, And also, it's um, this is this was interesting because I didn't get. I mean, I, I didn't have a choice with this. I didn't pick it. It picked me, Aaron Sorkin, who's the writer-director. He was the one that um, came to me and said, you know, would you be interested in doing this? So I was a hired actor on this, not a producer at all, which wow. was um, a relief. Yeah. <laughs> I got to start and work with some of the greatest people in the world. Yeah, what, um, I mean, what a cast list. You know, just I, I've yeah. got their names in front of me, but I'd rather them come from, from your mouth if you don't mind. Well, Javier Bardem, of course, is um, in, is my partner in crime, um, and uh, and he's just a glorious actor. So, I think I would have been far more um, terrified to do it if he hadn't have been playing Desi. And um, I, I think, I mean, Lucille Ball is really well known, right, in the UK. Yeah, no, unbelievably. Or, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but in Australia, we. We, I mean, I would watch the reruns of the um, Here's Lucy show and the I Love Lucy show when I would be home from school on a sick day or something. But it wasn't uh, – I didn't grow up with the show. So a lot of it for me was educating myself about her, um, the woman, um, and then, you know, 
realizing that we weren't remaking the I Love Lucy show. We were actually telling the story of um, Desi Arnaz and Lucille Ball. Yeah, no, that's so interesting because I, th- I thought, hang on a minute, here we go, Passion Project. Um, she's been a lifelong fan. But that's, that's refreshing to hear and, and makes what you've all achieved, you and your pals, uh, you, you and your clever pals in the world of film, even more <laughs> impressive. So let, let's, for people who are in a similar situation to you, in fact, even more elementary, let's just, let's just explain who Lee, Lucille Ball was as a film star, first of all, then a radio star, a reluctant but brilliant radio yeah. star, then the biggest yeah. TV star in the world and and now you know a forever legend yeah well it's interesting um because yeah she started off um trying to make it in movies and uh, she sort of was cast in a lot of the what they called the b movies um and she never made it to that um the same places say the big stars of the time like grace kelly or marilyn monroe or any of those people she she really sort of stayed in this slightly lesser um, roles where she was the supporting role to, and she always wanted to be like the Rita Hayworths, and she didn't get to that to that place. So um, she met Desi later on in life. She was um, uh, sort of at 39. She said, "I think I'm. It's not going to happen for me." And uh, and then she was sort of put into what you would call put out to pasture, <laughs> and um, she took on radio. Um, and she made a massive hit out of a radio play called My Favourite Husband, which then led to television, which she wasn't relishing. She was like, nah, I, this is not, you know, unless you get, unless you really kind of accept me on my terms, I'm not going to do it. And then she made, she and her husband, Desi Arnaz, made a, this the I Love Lucy show into a massive hit. And there would be 60 million people watching that show across America. Uh, it was It was huge, and you perfectly you portray the industry behind what it takes to make a massive hit and it just reminded me of shows like friends and you know what must go on behind the scenes and the fact that you know again you know we're not fighting fires or fighting wars in show business but you know to do things well it takes real grit and determination and and real sort of you know uh, you know you can't dial it in for a second because people just know about it even from the comfort of their own homes uh, but, but it was a surprise hit for her because one of the reasons she she, she agreed to do it was to keep Keep her marriage together and this is the story i didn't know and it's there are three or four different arcs to this story which are, i mean it, any one of them would have made a film uh, but you literally can't take your eyes off of what you're seeing on screen and i'm so fascinated by by all these different strands of uh, highs and lows in her life yeah i mean and in them as a couple you can hear the birds singing in the background here <laughs> and that's right um and uh um, yeah, as a couple, what they did, I mean, they started a production company called Desilu Productions, which was really the first time actors had their own production company. But it also, you know, deals with communism. She was accused of being a communist. She was um, put on the list and therefore her career was possibly going to be destroyed overnight with headlines of being a communist. She also had to fight to be able to be pregnant on the show because they didn't want to show pregnancy because it sort of suggested things that they were not willing to show on American television. And um, all of these, I mean, what what I was fascinated by is the part, the trailblazing part that she took and took on so many things with him and really made a difference. I mean, for me and for a lot of the people following in her path, we say thank you. Thank you to 
both of them actually. And they didn't make it as a couple, which is not giving away the story. <laughs> but um, they didn't make it, but they had an extraordinary relationship. And that was the primary thing for me was that this this was a story worth, worth telling. It wasn't just something where you go, oh, my gosh, I'm going to play Lucille Ball. And I want, I mean, for me, it was a riveting story. Of course, when she finished this TV show, just briefly before we pop off, um, she, 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 she went on to, you know, her production company made Star Trek and Mission Impossible and these other yeah. legendary TV shows that you've heard of. Yes, that's why they were extraordinary producers. I mean, Desilu Productions is is famous, and they created this this. I mean, that it's extraordinary what they did. Their taste, you know. So not not only their own, but there's a great scene in it where he says to all of the sort of the big brass who are standing there, going, "Listen, you can't be pregnant on the show," and this and that. And he goes, "Fine, then we don't do the show. So you guys go write the show and do it." <laughs> And you realise how valuable the talent is when he just says it point blank like that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I and they sort of look and go, okay, uh, right. <laughs> we can't do it without you. <laughs> yeah, it's a non-negotiation. I love the telegram uh, to Philip Morris, don't fudge with the Cuban. I'm paraphrasing. Yeah. I'm paraphrasing there. I'm on the radio for heaven's sake. And that's true. <laughs> yeah, it that is That actually true. Is, was a true, yeah, that was a true telegram, which you think is Aaron Sorkin writing a great line? No. That was re- that telegram was real. Thank you, Nicole. Thank you, Keith. Lots of love. Love you, Chris. Bye. Love you. Cheers, Thank man. You. All right. That's the Kidmans there. Or <laughs> the Edmunds. Or the Edmund Kidmans. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky. Virgin Radio. Stage or screen, our next guest is an undeniable master of his craft, and his latest work of brilliance is no exception. Belfast is out in cinemas tomorrow, and here to tell us more is a man that speaks the language of film better than most. It's the one, the only, Sir Kenneth Branagh! Good morning, Sir Kenneth! Good morning, Chris. How are you? Very well. How are you? I'm good and good. Very, very nice to be with you. All uh, right, your film, Belfast. Uh, what, what an amazing movie. It is beautiful, it's heartfelt, it's warm, and it's terrifying. Discuss. Uh, well, the, the film's about, you know, I would say probably 20 seconds in my, in my experience that changed my life, and it was when I was nine, just coming in for my tea on a hot August day in 1969, uh, the 15th of August, at the same time in, the, in America, the Woodstock Pop Festival was happening, legendary things were happening, the world was changing, and in that part of the world, in Belfast, in the street where I lived, a, a crowd arrived that I thought I was hearing as a sort of swarm of bees it wasn't bees it was a it was a it was a rioting mob and they ran through the street and they picked up the grates at the side and they marked the catholic houses and they lifted up the paving stones and two hours later i came out the front door having been cowering under the table in the kitchen having been dragged out of this riot by my mother and and two hours later there are barricades at either end of the street and suddenly back in 1969 we're in our own terrifying lockdown. Uh, I remember, of course I do, uh, brought up uh, with what was going on with the troubles and all the various news reports and the footage. You remember the bombs and the bullets and the barricades, but straight off the bat, you know, your film is a mum sheltering her son and herself with a dustbin lid from rocks being thrown that could easily kill them. 
Yeah, the, this this what what was so terrifying was the instantaneous nature of it, the the way in which uh, violence suddenly roared into this very sort of present thing from what was really a community that wasn't an idyll, but certainly a home. Everybody got on, and when that got disrupted like that, of course, what it did was put you on high alert for everything that followed, because you realize, well, if it can happen like that once, it could happen again. It changed a lot of people's lives. It obviously had an enormous impact on the lives of everybody in that part of the world. World. But what the film's trying to do is look at, at how one family deals with that and also how one nine-year-old boy uh, deals with it when, um, you know, his life really, you know, he's nine. It's about it's about football. It's about this girl that he's passionately in love with. It's about going to the pictures. It's about all these what you might call ordinary things. And now suddenly it's from this period of what you might call innocence. He has to move into um, you know, some form of whatever adult adulthood brings, and what it brings is is frightening. And 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 when it's frightening, you then run to the the quickest humor you can find, and the soonest song you can find, and the dance and the ad hoc party. So these two things are going on at the same time: the tension of imminent violence and the need for the coping mechanisms, for the fun, for the release. And it's um, you know the two things are fighting each other the whole way through the film and uh rachel was brought up in northern Ireland. now she watched the film yesterday and um she says and uh, you know um this is pretty (laughs) this is some statement she said it's the best film she's ever seen and she'd like to talk to you about it now hi kenneth Ah, thanks, Rachel. Hi, and thank you so, so much. That's so kind of you. So I grew up in Northern Ireland and then at 19 I went to England to go to university and I'm 42 and I'm still here. So the movie speaks to me on so many levels, but just the script writing, the script that you wrote, there are so many moments where I paused and and rewound because I was watching it on my laptop. Like when, when Pop says, when you've got grey hair, people think your heart never skipped a beat. I mean, those sorts of lines. Did, do you just write things like that down and save them in a notebook? Or how do you write it? Well, I don't know. Maybe Rachel's to do when you get to 61 and you start to, you start to be aware that people can, be, uh, can have certain kinds of views about what happens to passion and, and things as you get on. My grandparents were, uh, you know, wise people. You come from that part of the world and, you know, they, they have this thing also, maybe you experience it of... Um, which is why the films are kind of paradox. Um, you know, the, you, you're supposed to not ever sort of get above yourself. Your own problems or your own suffering is, you know, you can't indulge in because other people are always going to be much worse off. But I think that um, there's a desire to express all this. And I used to hear that from my grandparents. I don't ever heard that particular line, but I did feel that they were, uh, you know, they were people of great emotional intelligence um, with a sort of street wisdom uh, that you got for free. And one of the things about the film was, was trying to sort of capture that and, and, and drop it in for, for people to recognise because the really beautiful thing that I've experienced with people's exposure to it, and it's wonderful to hear what you're saying, but, you know, uh, I've, I've had an Iranian come up to me and say, that's my story. A fellow from Haiti come up to me and say, that's my story. So many people identify with it. And the Belfast of it is very interesting for them because they may not have been there. But the sort of universality of the story seems to, seems to travel way beyond the north of Ireland. Before you go, uh, Ken, I suspected you meditated, but I didn't know until today. Uh, we just looked it up. You meditate twice a day. For people who've never had a go, um, it's interesting when you first try it, but please, please just pass on, pay it forward a little bit, the usefulness of, of those couple of windows of stillness within a day. Well, you've already put it well, um, stillness. A lot of us have... Um, 
that the racing mind and we have that voice in our heads uh, questioning a million things oh did i did i you know have i paid the thing have i got the what's name or do i need to say that why did that person do that uh, racing minds full of noise and if you can find a moment twice a day even for a few seconds for a few minutes or even half an hour uh, it's an amazing thing someone once described it to me like this they said have you ever been on retreat uh, i said no i haven't and they said well i go on retreat two times a day and that's what meditation did for them a moment to hear feel experience some quiet and also don't criticize yourself what i would say if you ever tried doing this it's not for everybody but i think it's helpful to anybody who tries it there are no bad meditations and and even if you feel as though you didn't get anywhere if you get a nanosecond of peace or stillness or quiet it will be so restorative to you for the rest of your day that the effort and it is effort uh, but it's really, really an effort that pays off. Um, so, Ken, is there anything else you'd like people to know about your film, which is out tomorrow, Belfast? Well, I'm, I'm, I'm grateful that people are, are, like yourselves are, are drawing attention to it. It makes such a difference these days, Chris. Everybody, everybody who does what we do needs all the help we can get. It's a big joined-up community of people who care about stuff like this, and I know you do, and your passion and your enthusiasm, and yours, Rachel and, and, and Dave and Bassos, everybody... Thank you so much for that. And I hope you get a chance to go and see it or any other film. Any other film would be fine as well because uh, we love people going to the pictures. But if you could put this one at the top of the list, we'd be delighted and, and I hope you enjoy it. All right, mate. Well done. Congratulations to all, all the nominations and all the awards. It's already won. And um, fingers crossed for the Academy Awards. Thank you, Sir Ken Branagh. Thanks a lot, Chris. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky. Virgin Radio. Is coffee bad for you? Will going vegan make you lose weight? And do you really have an allergy? If you've got questions, he has the answers. His latest book, Spoon Fed, is out now. So if you like your myth-busting to be largely gut-busting, look no further than the brilliant Professor Tim Spector. Good morning, Tim. Good morning, Chris. <laughs> How are you today? <laughs> marvellous. <laughs> you are marvellous. All right, so um, this book, is it true that this book came from the fact that a load of really clever people who might have agreed got together and suddenly discovered they didn't agree? Uh, sort of. That's a good reasonable. I mean, I think we've, we've been misled for a long time, really, and I think the tide is turning now. Right. And, uh, yeah, I, I sort of... In the book, I talk about this conference I went to where suddenly, uh, you know, um, people are starting to say things that they shouldn't be saying and that they've never said What does before. that mean? What does that mean, the things they shouldn't be saying? What does that phrase mean? Well, it, it means that suddenly the, the person that's been talking that fats are bad for you is suddenly saying, well, there's some new data out showing that fats aren't bad for you or that, um, you know, sugar may not be as deadly or that, salt may not be as uh, quite as bad in some of these new studies and that we might have got some of this stuff wrong. And this is the first time really anyone's broken ranks uh, with this sort of, you know, the, the food mafia that's been around for the last 30 years um, and, and, it, and suddenly talking about it and, and starting to publish this stuff, which has broken a lot of the dogma really of the last 30 years. And I think that's what's refreshing about nutrition at the moment is people like myself and, and others, you know, respects in the field are standing up and actually saying, you know what, we did get it wrong. And, uh, you know, it's caused a lot of problems and we need to start putting it right. And I think this is why it's such an important turning point um, in the whole history of the very young science of nutrition, which 
you know, is only a very modern invention, really. Well, where have we been getting it most wrong, if that's a question at all? I think um, the idea after the war that um, there was a set of rules that applied to everybody, that because we were worried about vitamin deficiencies after the war, we started to say, well, there's a maximum amount of fat everyone can have and a maximum amount of sugar everyone can have, and uh, everything can be prescribed in very simple ways, in a reductionist way that um, treated us a bit like dummies and also treated the complex complexity of food and nutrition, you know, like a kid's game uh, and divide everything into, you know, four essential ingredients. All that matters is the calories, the fats, the sugars and the proteins. And it turns out that's complete rubbish. <laughs> you say so matter-of-factly. It turns out that's complete rubbish. It is. Right, so what do we do now? Uh, now we've just got to all learn to be <laughs> our own nutritionists, realise that we're all individual, we all respond very differently to food. Yep. You, you and I, if we eat exactly the same uh, breakfast muffin, for example, yep. we're going to have a very different response to it um, with different sugar peaks, uh, inflammation, fat you know, levels, uh, and your hunger level is going to be different to mine at, you know, after four hours. So... Realising that we're all different means that we, we can't really follow some bog-standard guidelines. We've got to start thinking about food in a very different way. Think about it as the hundreds of chemicals it's made up of. Um, everyone thinks of a banana. I don't know, they might think of banana. What do you think of that? You're Novak Djokovic and... <laughs> don't bring him into it, whatever no. you do. <laughs> but potassium levels, yeah, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. That's just one of 600 things in a banana. Yeah. And... We've got used to this reductionism that sells uh, vitamin supplements, it sells cereal packets, it's, it's consumerism gone crazy, which suits everybody except poor old us and our bodies. And it doesn't talk about our, our gut microbes, which is the whole new area of nutrition that, for me, opened this all up, because that's how I got into it, really, was through uh, working on uh, the genes in the gut microbes and realise that, well, this is, if there's a whole other organ in there, how does our food interact with that? And why is no-one ever discussing this in when they tell us what to eat? So if you take a six-week period to retrain your microbiome, then thinking, I can't keep this up for more than six weeks, the microbiome may then, may then stand a chance of taking over and doing the rest of the heavy lifting for you. So if you, if you give it six weeks, it might give you six years. Well, it might give you 60 years. That's yes. what I, uh, yeah. yeah, no, exactly. Okay. That's, that's exactly right. So everyone has the power to improve themselves permanently if they start thinking about food as a way of nourishing themselves and their gut microbiome and treat it like, you know, a family pet you really want to look yeah, exactly, after. Exactly, exactly. And we often feed, feed our dogs and look after our dogs and take our vet, uh, dogs to the vets much more than we care for ourselves, don't we? Notoriously. Projection. Yeah. It's the care we want to give ourselves, but we don't feel we deserve it. Yeah, it's about time we changed. You're awesome. Thanks, Professor. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky. Virgin Radio. She wowed in line of duty and now she's back on the beat in another surefire telly hit. Her brand new series, Trigger Point, starts this Sunday at 9pm on ITV. So it's time to welcome an actor that's played a police officer so many times, she now has actual legal power to arrest you. It's Vicky McClaw! <laughs> Good morning! Hi, Vicky. Does it feel like that sometimes? Um, no. <laughs> I have no powers. 
Vicky, um, what are you doing to us with this show? We all watched a preview screening last night. Boy, oh boy, it had us on the edge of our seats for so many reasons. Would you like to fr- Would you like to frame it for our listeners? Yeah, so basically it's um, set within the bomb disposal world. <clears throat> Excuse me, frog in my throat there. Uh, yeah, and I play Lana Washington. She's a bomb disposal expert. She's actually not a police officer, so she couldn't arrest you if she wanted to. They actually have to always be with a police officer at all times. Gotcha. Um, so, yeah, it's slightly different, very high octane, as you've seen. Um, it's a really exciting show. I'm very proud of everyone that worked on it. So I'm really excited to get it out. Right, it's called Trigger Point. begins this Sunday, 9pm. You know, and if you've had a relaxing Sunday and you, you're you thinking about easing your way into the week, then, <laughs> then think again, my friends. Um, it has that, that sense of a show like Call the Midwife or, or CSI and as much as one would imagine to, to inhabit this role, you've had to do some deep research into what the real heroes that, that do this for a living do on a daily basis yeah we did we had some brilliant people with us throughout the whole show um and we did you know we did learn as much as we can but there's only a very short space of time to learn skills that take years and years and years to you know to master so i I hope we've done you know expos proud um but it, it was, it was a fascinating show to work and I've never worked on something where there's that many sort of, because obviously there's going to be explosions. Um, so there was lots of stunts and lots of really talented people that were there sort of making it look incredible. Did you get into the psyche? I mean, you must have met lots of real life expos. in, in Yeah, in I did. And, and I think just sort of like trying to tap into their bravery and that sort of lack of fear. And also, you know, if you are going up to a device, you've got to have such you know patience and a firm hand and all that kind of stuff there were so many things that I wanted to get right um, and they were really supportive so hopefully hopefully I've done a good job what are they like as people people you know the, the these these Do you know what they're amazing... so blasé not blasé but like they're so good at their jobs right. to them it's second nature um so the way that they describe it and all the you know the sort of training that they've had and the fact that they've seen things that we'll never see in our lifetime. Um, I think they've just got such a wonderful sort of strong, brave persona about them. Um, And I didn't see that, that falter really. So yeah, for me, I was just like in awe of how brave and, you know, the things that I couldn't do it, I just couldn't do it. And what is the feeding pool, pool if, if there is one, um, for, you know, people who want to get into expert? Is it the military? Is it is it police work first and foremost? You know, is it the emergency services? Or, or does it take all sorts? I would say it's probably you'd start that sort of stuff in the army. Um, I know that Lana has a backstory that she was serving in Afghanistan and now she's working for the Met. But as it stands, there's no female expos in the Met. Um, I've double checked that. So it's it's um, as it stands, that is the case. But there's lots of female expos in, you know, in the army. So I don't know. Hopefully this could this could be inspiring for people. You know, I know lots of people that have been really inspired to join the force after watching Line of Duty, which is, you know, a real honour to know that. Um, so we'll see. I mean... Lana holds her own. She's in a man's world, that's for sure, but she gives as good as she gets. 
we forget, don't we, sometimes how much we were influenced by things we used to watch on the telly. And if you see somebody, uh, you know, um, uh, existing in an exciting, uh, adventurous, um, uh, you know, often death-defying world as a, as a child or a teenager, you can be inspired. Yeah. And I remember C- CSI, uh, there was a great, t- yeah. a huge take-up for CSI, wasn't there, for students yes. studying all those different sort of um, important degrees that you need to do to go into CSI after you leave university. And this will be the same, you know, and obviously you recognise this, as you just said, from Line of Duty. Yeah, I think, you know, telly is so powerful, isn't it? And we really need that escapism. And there's so many things that we get from it educationally. I mean, I learned, I didn't really know anything about expos. I'd never heard the word expo. I just knew they sort of looked after devices and bombs. And, you know, it was something that I just never really looked into. So once you've started to get knowledge and you learn the history, you become quite enthralled by it and quite fascinated. And, you know, now I just, if I hear, you know, things that I can connect it to, it's it's quite inspiring, really. I'm glad you said that, Vicky, because I didn't really know. I was a bit too embarrassed to say I'd never heard the phrase Expo before, but now you've sort of given me permission to talk about it. What does yeah, it, no, exactly. What, what, does exactly. It, what does it mean? Well, it's basically a bomb disposal expert. Right. Um, so it's, it's just a... Uh, their acronym, if you like. I've done plenty of them. Um, so, I mean, I, I think it's one of the... Unless you've seen, like, Hurt Locker, you know, which is a great film, quite old now, but um, I remember watching that years ago. There's not really an awful lot that's just sort of covering this subject. So yeah. I think we've... You know, Daniel, the writer, has managed to find a niche that um, is something that people can learn a lot about that they might not have known about before. Are you always in great shape, by the way? Is that is that is that is that how you are in life, or do you have to train up for these particular roles? No, I, do you know what? I'm not really a gym goer. I think people that know me know that. Um, I'm a I'm a busybody. I'm always up and about, and I live on my nerves. Right. I think that's just done me in good stead. That does help. <laughs> <laughs> so that 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 and a few weights, a few reps. What else did you learn about life whilst making this show? The long walk. The long walk is like. You know, the walk from wherever you are to the device, um, just the thought process for that. I found that really fascinating, like what might be going through somebody's head. Is that what they call it? Do they call it the long walk? Call it the long walk, wow. yeah. Wow. Yeah. Oh, my goodness me. I know. <gasps> Just real, that, just that serious phrase. stuff. It is real. Yeah. And, and, you know, and it comes across so well on the telly. Let me, t- you know, I know you've made it and you're very good at this, you and the gang you're working with, but it is, it is honestly, seat of the pants stuff. So, so oh, well done. Oh, great. Thanks, Chris. Right, I nice. really appreciate that. No, the show's fantastic. Thanks for being on our show. Oh, thanks, Chris. Pleasure to be here. You're absolutely awesome. Vicky McClure, uh, Trigger Point, um, hits your screens and you will not be able to take your eyes off it. Honestly, we all watched it last night. It begins this Sunday, 9pm on ITV and it's absolutely awesome. The best. Of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky. Virgin Radio. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads, generally, for most people, are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. 
Okay, it appears we've heard from a bunch of sensational guests already. Yes, we did. Uh, that has been confirmed, but still to come. American psychologist and author Ethan Cross, who's so clever, it's ridiculous, uh, delves into our internal dialogues with his best-selling book, Chatter. American Marvel Martha Plimpton reveals all about starring in the critically acclaimed and oh-so-compelling brand-new Sky original movie, Mass. An Australian singer-songwriter and dad of Bluey in the beloved children's TV show, Bluey, he plays bandit Dave McCormick joined us live from the land of Oz right so let's get back to it all Dapper Dave who's next if you're looking for some wholesome fun in the shape of some Australian cartoon dogs then look no further the smash hit kids TV show Bluey is on CBBS, BBC iPlayer and Disney Plus and joining us now is the voice of bandit who in our mind is 50% man 50% dog but 100% fun fair dinkum it's Dave McCormack good morning Dave good morning how are you (laughs) Oh my god! I can't believe I'm talking to Bandit. I'm, I'm, You're talking. Well, yeah. Hi. Hey. Hello from Sydney, Australia. So thrilled, mate. So thrilled. Um, before we get on to Bandit and Bluey, of course, you do other things as well, um, which include what, my friend? Um, back in the '90s, I was in a band called Custard, who never got to go over to your fine country. But I did that for a little bit, and then I do music for TV shows. But now I mainly just use my normal voice to. Um, Voice banded healer. Oh, Here well, it is. This is my voice, mate. It's so great to talk to you. Tell us about you and Bluey. How did you get involved? Let's start. Let's start at the beginning. I start at the beginning. Well, look, I was sort of, I was getting out of a lift, and someone was getting into a lift, and they were like, "Hey, do you want to do the voice of a dog on a TV show?" And I was like, "I can't do voices. I, I don't know how to act." And they said, "Can you read?" And I said, "I can read." So um, they gave me a script. I read it, and here we are. Like. A hundred episodes later. Now it's taken the world by storm. You know, its its star continues to to rise. Um, how big is it in Australia? When did you get some kind of handle on how big it was going to become, and it still is still becoming throughout the rest of the world? Well, I'm, I'm amazed that it's as big as it is. Like I thought it was going to be a seven minute uh, sort of YouTube video or something. You know, like a, a standalone short film. But then. You know, we keep doing episodes and people love it. And I go to the beach and everyone's got bluey togs on and bluey surfboards and bluey merch everywhere. And it's uh, it's bigger than all of us now. Mark Liston's been on and he says there's a massive bandit uh, bluey fan group for dads across the world. Are you aware of this? Nearly 10,000 10, dads, 10, dads all trying to be a bit more like bandit. 10,000 dads can't be wrong, right? Yeah, I it's a, it, when, when we started doing it, I've got two daughters, Rose and Grace, and they were about four and six when we started doing it. So it was really relatable to me. I, You know, you get the script and it's like, that's exactly what happened this morning in the kitchen. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I didn't really have to act. I just had to remember what happened. And, um, it, you know, everyone loves it. And it's pretty funny. Come on. When we're doing the scripts, we're laughing because it's so well written. It's so tight and it's so bright and it's so funny and it's so 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 heartfelt. It's so joyous. It's so instructive, though, Dave. I mean, all jokes aside, as a dad, I have learned you this show has helped me out so, so much. <laughs> I'm not kidding. I'm not being I'm not being cute. I'm I being don't. serious. Look, I'll tell you what, we do we do a couple of episodes and I get ideas like from the scripts, and I'm like, right, I'm gonna go home right now and I'm gonna be a better dad. And for about 45 minutes, I try and be a better dad. Then I go, oh, it's too hard. Have some <laughs> iPad time. 
there was there's a very famous sitcom of the 90s which was a really brilliant sitcom but you know it was an american sitcom i, I won't put a name to it but you know it was a 23 minute show and you know that at about 78 minutes the moral's going to kick in and as good as the yeah. moral was it was a bit sort of it was a bit ev- evangelical it was a bit sort of preaching from the pulpit and th- this just yeah. this just doesn't do that but it gets the the points across the helpful hints super hacks across all the the more sort of effectively for it yeah, exactly. And sometimes it it doesn't take the easy, happy ending out. Like there's some episodes that are genuinely heartfelt and sad, and there's some really tough lessons in them. And there's some other ones that are completely surreal and psychedelic and out there, which I love as well. So, you, you know what? It, and and it, it's not like a normal kids show where it's, it sort of wraps up with a happy ending at the end. It can leave it hanging in the air sometimes. Yeah. So there's been some some stuff that's happened in episodes that's, you know, really emotionally hard to deal with. But um, And then there's other times just about keeping a balloon in the air. So it's good. It's a good balance. Yeah, well, it's life, isn't it? That's what it is. You know, it's about, we talked about it yesterday. It's about, you know, don't shy away from work that has no end. That, that's us. That's that's what me and you have always lived by, right, Chris? We, our work has no end. Yeah, I know. You, you, you know, the, your biggest dreams should have no end either because the best dreams usually don't. So you just crack on every day, just just loving every second. So you're 100 episodes in. Where do you I, go? I've lost count. Maybe 150. I don't know. It's heaps. So where'd it's you go, huge. Where do you go from here? I mean, they must have signed you up for life, mustn't they? I have no idea. Like, I, I just sort of uh, stumble along from day to day. Like... It has no end, like you were just saying, Chris. This is it. This is, there's no beginning. There's no end. There's just the now, and that's where we are. Like many episodes in, hopefully many more to go. Who knows? I wonder what Peppa Pig thinks. <laughs> See, I, I, because my little ones were deep into Peppa Pig and Charlie and Lola. Yeah, yeah. So it was just like a natural little progression for um, me to get into this world. As a dad yourself. What are the big takeaways mm-hmm. you've taken away from, from you know, Bandit the Dad to, to Dave the Dad? Yeah, you, you know what? It's about being present, isn't it? Yeah. It's about having that time and that engagement with your kids because it's so easy not to. And I don't want to get all, like, weird about it, but it, they're only young for a short time and they're going to not talk to you for a million years. And you know what I mean? <laughs> you, they're going to they're gonna do their own thing. So, you know, already, like, I miss that sort of, three-year-old, four-year-old, five-year-old wonder of the world, you know, where you can just like engage with them and they just go with it. But anyway, look, life goes on. No, but you're so right. You know, it's been said a thousand times. It'll be said hopefully thousands of times again. Time doesn't do refunds and all the quiet and all the peace and all the um, sort of the, the 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 calm that you want away from your kids that's all to come that is in the bag you're going to get more of that the you 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 know be careful what you wish for people that's it you've nailed it like just enjoy it now like you know you know when you're in it and then it's the first like year or two and you're dying and there's nappies and there's teething and there's wetting the bed and but you just got to enjoy yeah. that because there'll be plenty of times when the roles will be reversed and you want to, you want to talk to them and they'll be like, no way, dad, you're uncool, man. I'm on TikTok. Forget it. Um, and when was the last time you were on the beach and how far are you from, from the sea? I was on, I've, I've come from the beach now. Oh, I've gone from Brighton to Sands on the beach. We took the kids down to pick up some shells. It was amazing. And it's just, it was afternoon. It was a little bit windy, but it's not too bad. We're about seven minutes from the beach. Is that walking or in the car? 
In the car. Okay. Yeah, we could walk it. Look, when you come over, we'll walk it. It's cool. I got a bike. We'll, we'll ride the pushies down. <laughs> this is going to happen. I got scooters. Dude, yeah, yeah. We'll do this. Happen. All right, mate. Listen, thanks so much. Have a beautiful rest of your Thursday. And thank you so much for talking to you us. You too. Hey, hey, thanks for taking the time and good on you. I'll see you soon. All right, mate. That is um, Bluey's dad, Bandit, a.k.a. Dave McCormick, or the other way around. Don't really mind, and he won't mind either. What a laid-back dude. Oh, my goodness me. <sighs> I've just... Uh, my love has gone to a different level now. Yeah. Unbelievable. I've doubled down or up or sideways or across. And... The fact that when he meant 100%, like get a flight or 100% get a flight, he used the word hundo to me. 100%. <laughs> hundo. <laughs> Blue is available to watch on CBBS via BBC iPlayer and Disney Plus, and it's number one in our house. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky. Virgin Radio. Our next guest knows the true power of having a proper word with yourself. His amazing book, Chatter, The Voice in Our Head and How to Harness It, is out in paperback next month. So let's open our minds as we have a natter about chatter that matters with Ethan Cross. Good morning, Ethan. Good morning, Chris. How are you? I'm very well. Thank you for so much for being up at half past four, four thirty a.m. in the morning in Michigan. Well, you know, it's uh, it's it's my favorite time because <laughs> no one else is up. It's nice and quiet, freezing cold. So I'm delighted to be here. <laughs> All right. Um, I reread your book. Of course, we've talked about it before. The paperback version is out now. I encourage people to get into this book. Um, well, let's just dive straight straight in. Uh, the voice in our head. Uh, what is it? Why is it there? And whose voice? Is it? Well, you know, we all have a voice in our head. When I use that term and when scientists use it, what we are referring to is our ability to silently use language to reflect on our lives. Turns out that this is a, a, a really incredible asset that we possess. Your inner voice lets you do lots of remarkable things, like when you go to the grocery store and you need to remind yourself, hey, what did my wife tell me to get? And you go over your list milk, cheese, Yogurt, you do that silently, you use your inner voice to do it. We also use our inner voice to control yourself. So when I'm exercising and I'm telling myself, come on, seven more reps, count down, seven, six, five, that's your inner voice. We use our inner voice to simulate and plan before a big interview or presentation. We'll often rehearse what we're going to say during that interview to ourselves. That's your inner voice. And then finally, we use our inner voice to narrate our lives. Things happen. We need to make sense of our experiences in this world. And we use our inner voice to tell stories that really give shape to our sense of who we are. So it is a, it is a remarkable Swiss army knife of the human mind that I think we're much better off uh, for having, except when it turns into what I call chatter. Okay. Um, so many questions, um, so many different avenues we could go down from that particular inflection point. Um, first of all, let's talk about uh, let's get let's go halfway, shall we? In between the inner voice and chatter, let's talk about commentary the the constant commentary of us by ourselves on ourselves. That's the beginning of chatter, I would say. Yeah, well, you know, once that some of that that commentary can be helpful because. We like to, to to understand what we're going through in our lives. Human beings, we're, we're meaning-making machines, right? We like to have an understanding of why things happen. And your inner voice helps you do that. And so that level of commentary um, can, be, can be fine. What happens when it becomes dysfunctional is when 
something happens. So Chris, let's say you have someone come on the show and uh, let's say they're from the States, I don't know, and they're particularly difficult as a guest. And and they're saying things to you that are maybe insulting. And and then you pause and you think, well, why did that happen? Did I say something? Did they do something? And you try to work through that issue, but you don't come up with a solution. You just keep on spinning over and over and over as you try to make sense of that problem. That's when the adaptive inner commentary morphs into chatter. You get stuck in these negative thought loops that lead us to feel increasingly upset. And that is a huge problem. And Has so, that ever happened, by the way? Well, I, I hope not. No, to be honest, it, it, it doesn't happen at all anymore because I've sort of learned to listen, not with my ears, but with my whole body. Um, and I honestly believe that if I do that this end, whether you can see me or not, I think guests pick up on the space that I'm allowing for them to say whatever they want to land particularly. And it's funny that you should talk about that because the the voice that I f like best is when it's not talking to me, but I'm talking to someone else with that voice. And I'm not quite sure who I am talking to. And this is a new relationship that I've, I, I seem to have, have dealt with myself over the last couple of years. So, you know, I'm no longer being talked to. It's not self-talk. It's it's I've inhabited that voice. So I like I have two. question number one about that. First of all, is our inner voice born at the same time as our outer voice, which comes first, which I find quite interesting, um, which one w began to feed into the other? And second of all, um, do, do, do you have you recognized any studies where we stop being talked to and we are using our inner voice to talk to something or someone else? Yeah. So, um, uh you know, the data, um, the developmental data. So when the, you know, what comes first, the inner versus the outer, uh, most of the work in this space deals with, um, self-control and how we, how we learn how to use our inner voice to coach ourselves along. And, and this, some of this is really fascinating work. It goes back to, a, a Russian psychologist named Lev Vygotsky, who suggested the way we learn to control ourselves is by first listening to what our caretakers tell us to do. So I've got two little kids. I'm constantly telling them, you know, um, clean up, take your dishes to the sink and, and clean up after yourself. And, and, you know, also applauding them. Great job. You know, um, uh, daddy loves you. And what the kids end up doing is they get, then go off into a corner or into their play area and they start repeating out loud those things that I tell them and that my wife tells them. And then eventually, and if you have little kids or have been around them, you've seen them do this. They're, they're, they're doing self-talk out loud. Jimmy shouldn't do this. Jimmy has to do that. <laughs> but over time, that external narrative starts to go internal. Yeah, yeah. And that's how we think one, one way in which um, kids learn how to, how to exercise self-control. So, so it starts off on the outside and then gets internalized. Ethan, you've been awesome. What's it going to be? Uh, back to bed or on with the day? Uh, it's on with the day. Okay. Well, I've, I've got, I've got two hours till the kids wake up oh, and uh, I'm going to make full use of them. <laughs> what are you going to do? Um, I'm, I'm going to do work. What else? I, you know, I, I'm just going to get right to it. So have, have my tea and, and get going. All right, pal. Thanks a lot. I hope to talk to you again one day. Thank you very much.
Thanks for having me on. Take care. Bye-bye. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky. Virgin Radio. From the Goonies to the Good Wife, if our next guest is in it, you just know it's Ace. She stars in the remarkable new Sky original film Mass, out tomorrow in cinemas and on Sky Cinema. And if you're the betting type this awards season, you could do much worse than plumping for a Plimpton, specifically a Martha Plimpton. Good morning, Martha. Hello. <laughs> Hello, how are you? I'm very well, how are you? Very well too. Didn't realise you lived here. I do, I've, it's been a couple of years now. Because we thought we were gonna have to, you were going to have to stay awake or get up early from somewhere east or west coast or um, somewhere else. But no, you're just sort of round the corner, so it's great to have you on the show. Congratulations Thank on you. this amazing, amazing piece of work, Martha. It's awesome. Thank you. It really Thank is. you so much. It's a film about the healing power of forgiveness and some. Would you like to frame um, the scenario for us? Yeah, it's a film about uh, two sets of parents who come together for um, a sort of sit-down meeting for the first time since a, a truly horrific event in both of their lives that involves their children. There's been a shooting uh, at their children's school prior, and they come together to sort of attempt some sort of restorative justice kind of thing. And the process is difficult and it's painful, but I think ultimately the film is sort of about a, a kind of grace that's possible, you know, when people actually listen to one another, actually look one another in the eye and you know, truly talk and truly see one another. The film was um, written by a, a really brilliant guy named Fran Kranz, who's an actor. And he was always sort of interested in uh, addressing uh, crimes in apartheid South Africa and those hearings that took place. And he was always fascinated by that because he wondered for himself if, if he would be capable of forgiving, forgiving. Um, and he, he really wasn't sure. And then he had a child and about a year later in the state of Florida, we had um, yet another school shooting, Parkland shooting. And it really jarred him. And he really wondered what he would do if he could forgive, if he could look the parents of the school shooter, the, the kid who'd done it in the eye. And he began the process of writing this script. And it's really extraordinary. Uh, it's um, a meticulous and a beautifully written uh, screenplay. You know, he writes this killer script and um, then it's your responsibility to, to, to bring it to life. Um, what was that like? <laughs> well, it, you know, I think because he'd written such a fantastic script and one that was that had so much, you know, it all takes place, most of it takes place in this one room, this one sort of um, church rectory. Um, but I but I couldn't put it down when I read it. It had such momentum and such movement in it. It struck me as incredibly cinematic. And, um, and I'm not one to really finish a script in one sitting. I, I find it really hard actually to even visualize most, you know, the world that most screenplays um, are trying to convey. But um, but with this one, I just, I, I saw it and I heard it in my mind 
sort of immediately right off the bat. So it wasn't very difficult uh, for us as actors, I think, to go in and, and do this. I think he'd really, he'd given us already such a fantastic roadmap um, that I, I think really all we had to do was trust one another, you know, the actors and become very, very intimate very, very quickly. It's a fantastic film. It really is. And it's, it's, it's this ensemble where it's so, it's so deep, you know, and you say there's so, so much movement and you're quite right. Geographically, there's no, hardly any movement at all because it's all in this one room and you do sort of cross from one side of the room to the other from uh, various chairs around a table to easy chairs and things like that. But the movement, mm. the movement emotionally is, I mean, it's, it's gargantuan. It's, it's, it's grief meets um, blame, meets incomprehension, you know, with this looming optimistic potential for forgiveness. And, you know, I, there, are, there are spoilers in it, you know, and I don't want to give them away. There are real moments, you know, because a film's anything, I suppose, any story has to have moments, otherwise it just becomes an amorphous sort of uh, sort of background um, sort of grayscale scenario. But there are real Ooh. moments in this, you know, and, and you think, where is this going to go next? How, how are you going to get to where I suspect you might have to go uh, as a viewer? And it was just, I mean, just awesome. 95% on Rotten Tomatoes um, already. It's so funny talking about such a serious film and then saying, 95% on Rotten Tomatoes! Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and, um, and you, you're with uh, Jason been on the show loads of times talking about various things but what's it like in between takes when you're filming a movie like this well um it's funny you mentioned jason jason isaacs who who plays jay my husband um and if you know him you know that he's quite a funny guy um <laughs> he's quite yeah. hilarious yes. um uh uh and so is reed bernie and so is ann dowd these are the uh, this is the other couple in the film, they're all very funny people. Um, but I'm, I must say, there wasn't any that we didn't, we weren't very precious about it, you know. Yeah, yeah. There wasn't any need to sort of go, you know, quiet on the set or, you know, I, I need a moment, I need to step away, you know, it was none of that. Um, we all were very, you know, Anne likes to say that we, we all sort of knew when we had to drop in, yeah, yeah. you know, yeah. and, um, and, and let these characters do their work and let the words do its work. And, and I refer to it as sort of like, you know, the piece of music that the film is, it's like a, it is like a piece of music. And so we actually in between, you know, you can't really live in that space for very long because yeah. it'll drive you crazy. Um, and nicely or fortuitously, we, we didn't have to live in that space. We could, we, there was an enormous amount of laughter on that set, which I realize sounds very strange, but there was, I mean, you know, Anne and Reed are sort of like a, a comedy duo over there. And, um, you know, Anne was constantly, you know, playing practical jokes on Reed and we did a lot of laughing a lot. I think it was, a, you know, a way to release. Yeah, yeah of course. You know, and a way to just kind of, you know, shake it off. Martha, you're awesome. What are you going to do next that's going to blow us away? Oh, my gosh. Well, um, I've done a I've just completed a, filming a series for Amazon called Sprung, where um, I've been reunited with Greg Garcia and Garrett Dillahunt, who I worked with on a show called Raising Hope, um, which uh, I think is shown here. 
um, quite a few people I, I know have seen it. And um, so we've done that. We've just shot that in Pittsburgh. And, uh, and now I'm shooting um, a series for Sky called A Town Called Malice. Yeah. which I'm really excited about. Yeah, we're just, we've just begun production. So it'll be a while before people can see it, but I'm really, really excited about it. Yeah. Okay, fantastic, Martha. You're always welcome on this show. It's a joy, it's a pleasure, it's Thank an honour to talk to you. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Thank you. Mass is a must-watch. You have to get yourself to watch this film, which won't be easy, but please try. The best of the Chris Evans Breakfast Show with Sky. Virgin Radio. Thank you so much for listening to this, the podcast of the Virgin Radio Breakfast Show. Don't forget you can subscribe and get it every week from wherever you get your podcast and you will never miss the weekly roundup of all the best bits from our Virgin Radio Breakfast Show with Sky. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.